0: Well, so we're in the second week of a new summer series called Summer Shorts. And so the, it's a kind of a word play. You can wear shorts to church. I see a number of you doing that. That's OK. It's also kind of based on this idea uh, that uh, in, the su- in the summer, a lot of times we're in and out of church a lot. We're on vacation or, or it's a sunny day and, you know, I have yard work to do or whatever. It's OK. So it's hard. we felt like it was harder to do a, a, a book of the Bible, like a series like that, because it'd be hard to kind of track that and a lot of visitors during the summer. So each week of the summer is kind of its own standalone series. So we decided to look at the minor prophets and some of the short letters of the New Testament. And so kind of the idea that we're looking at these shorter books and each one of them kind of with one big idea or a big question that it presents to us. And so today we're looking, uh, the kids are looking, this is an invitation to you that are here, uh, looking at the at joy, the fruit of joy, we're looking at the joy of repentance this morning. <laughs> so if that's like, you're like, whoa, I'm you can go to Sunday school, uh, we're going to look at the joy of repentance this morning. But before we do that, let's just take a moment to pray together. God, thanks for this opportunity we have to now open your word together. Uh, thanks that the prophets, uh, though they, they declared these words thousands of years ago now, um, speak truth today to our hearts. So, God, would that be the case for each of us, both personally and then for our community collectively? Would you speak truth to us? May I decrease? Would you increase? Would this time be a time of of revelation and next steps for all of us? pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I'm going to get real vulnerable here and tell you about the day that my love for baseball died. I know there's a lot of baseball fans here, and I see a lot of Mariners. Like, I was the Mariners game last night on Facebook, and I don't go to Mariners games anymore. So, uh, I, I was recently talking to a friend about this, and it, the day was December 13th, 2007, um, the day the Mitchell Report, if you're a baseball fan, you know this, the Mitchell Report was released that day. And the Mitchell Report was this widespread investigation into um, performance-enhancing drugs in baseball, so specifically steroid use. And uh, more than 80 current and, then, and now former baseball players were implicated in this report. There were Cy Young winners, batting champions, Golden Glove recipients, future Hall of Famers, um, it was a really bad day for baseball. And, uh, and so hence the day I lost my faith in the sport, just completely lost it. And see, I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and uh, we had a minor league team, <clears throat> Spokane Indians, huge fan of them. But I, I grew up just this avid baseball fan, and for some reason I was a real big fan of the California Angels. Uh, my boyhood era was the era of Chuck Finley and Nolan Ryan and Rod Carew and Reggie Jackson. And uh, I, I just remember sitting in our kitchen as a boy, pouring over the box scores in the sports section. The, the newspaper, for those that have never heard of such a thing, <laughs> it came in the mail and you'd open it up and the back was this area called the sports section. And they had box scores and you, I would just, it was like the modern day or the, not the Asian version, I guess, of fantasy baseball, 1980s version of fantasy baseball. So I'd, I'd, I'd just digest all these stats and then I'd go out in the backyard I was so obsessed with the game that I had this little aluminum uh, return trainer net. You know those things? You can throw the ball at it, and it bounces the ball back to you. And I, was, I would play the entire game out. I'd just throw the ball, and, and I'd catch the ball, and then I was now the center fielder, and like I'd, all that stuff. Um, I was just in love with the game. I, I really thought I was going to play Major League Baseball until ninth grade, and then I couldn't catch the ball. <laughs> the coach said, why don't you go back to swimming? You're pretty good at that. So... Uh, but on the day the Mitchell Report was released, when amongst my favorites, 80 were implicated in cheating, um, that was just enough. I was like, meh, I'm done with this game. So here I am, 10 years later, chatting with this friend of mine about my indifference toward baseball. And you know what he said to me? Uh, he knows my love for professional cycling. I'm a huge cycling fan, watched the Tour de France this morning, 5 in the morning, and which is equally tainted by performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> Uh, he said to me, "I don't really think people." This is a quote from my friend. I don't think people can change. At the end of the day, you are who you are, and it's probably who you've always been. Sports just highlights that reality. I don't think people can change. And that I heard that and my blood just curdled. Uh, my friend's not a believer, because I realized that he was though he was merely offering commentary on sport and kind of ribbing me a little bit for my hypocrisy. His statement just confronted a core conviction of not only my my faith. But of, I would say, our faith, our collective faith as Christians, which is simply this the idea that anyone can change. Anyone. Doesn't matter how bad you've been, how lost you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you've failed to do. Anyone can change. The gospel offers radical, life-reorienting, transformative change for all. Not just some, for all. I mean, think about this. Have you ever noticed the the frequency with which Jesus says repent? and believe the gospel. Repent and enter his kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Just read through the gospel sometime. It's like his, his main message. He's constantly preaching this, which begs this question. I mean, what's this idea of repentance that Jesus preaches and he seems so obsessed with? So much so is his first sermon, Matthew like 4.17, first sermon he preaches, repent and believe. And his last sermon, Revelation 3, <laughs> he's so obsessed with the idea. I mean, is this just God yelling, Like waving some big stick, yelling, you know, you knuckleheads, you just wait, I'm gonna get you, you know? Actually, no, I'll just say that at the front end here, not if you really understand the idea of repentance. So, repentance literally means to turn around. Like, so if I was repenting biblically, I've just repented. So, it's a spiritual 180, okay? And it's to change your mind, or as the poet uh, Rainier Marie Rilke once said, to revise your life completely you can think of editing a book, like revise your life completely. So it's not about just feeling sorry for the things you've done wrong or feeling bad or guilty and then somehow attempting to make up for all that lost time and all that wrong, you know. Uh, It's response to this promise held out to us by God that of profound and lasting life change. And then it's coupled, that's coupled, repentance is coupled with steps toward that promise. So it's response to this promise, you can change, and then taking steps toward that promise. That's all that repentance is. Uh, So now do you see why Jesus was so fixated on this idea that he declared, repent and believe the good news. His life was this minute, life rooted in this understanding that anyone can change, that every person he encountered, the the most hardcore Pharisee, the most hardcore sinner, you can all change. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you who you've been, what you've done, or left undone. He's, Jesus is all about change. And critically, he's all about leading people in that life of change. He's the, he's the change agent in the Gospels, which is why if we loop back to my loss of love for baseball and this conversation with my friend, were he here today, I think Jesus would meet us, any one of us in the room, the professional athletes, I know there's a lot of you in the room, <laughs> who's like caught in the cycle of cheating and addiction, or maybe you're a professional in the marketplace and you're just caught on the treadmill of just meaningless work. Or perhaps you're a stay-at-home parent. You're struggling with this weight of expectation. You think everybody thinks that you've, you just, you're failing, or you need to be perfect. Or you're a lifelong Christian. You're just burned out in religion right now. You're completely burned out, you know. Or you're, you're starting to discover new doubts as you read the Bible. Does it really say mean what it says? You're wrestling with deep fear. Any one of us in the room... Whatever you're facing can change. That's the gospel. Jesus would stand among us and declare to us, to our hearts personally and then collectively, repent and believe. That's what he'd say. And then God does this through the prophet Joel. If you heard the scripture, return to me, just like Jesus says, repent. Return to me with all your heart. Repent and believe. Do you hear that refrain? So that begs the question on the table for us this morning, how? How do we, like if that's truth, I can change, we can change, how do I walk into that truth? How do I walk into this invitation extended to me by Jesus to have my heart awoken and to then to live a life completely changed? And that's a great question, which I'm glad you asked it. That's going to lead us into our study in Joel this morning. So what we find Joel offering, this prophet in the Old Testament, as many of the prophets do, are just some critical insights in the process of repentance. And, and is really the joy of repentance, as I <laughs> joked earlier. So that over and over throughout the Old Testament, God is using these prophets, if you just read through all the prophets, they're really bizarre, uh, very bizarre, but He's using these prophets to invite us to change, to repent, to return to God, to turn to God, and, and to begin to make movements to align our lives with God's story. That's what the prophets are there for. And so today I just want to ex- explore some of those movements with you, so that as you go home and... Start to live out your life in this truth, this promise. You kind of have some handles for yourself. And we're gonna get three. And you'll notice as I teach this, we're gonna the bulk of the teaching is gonna be focused on the first movement. So if you have an outline in front of you, you'll see there's three movements. The first is gonna be where I spend the bulk of the time this morning. So if you're a timekeeper, and you're like, "Whoa, we just spent that much time on the first one." Whoa, don't worry. <laughs> I'm not going to break these down equally. So the first one, just listen on this, and the second two will move a little more quickly, okay? So the first movement is this. Recognize, we're called to recognize the magnitude of repentance, okay? There's a magnitude to it that is really important for us, and I want to break this down into two parts, okay? And Because and, they're connected. So the first part of this idea of magnitude is, is articulated in verse 12 of chapter 2 of Joel. So if you want to have it open, we're going to really focus in on chapter 2 of Joel, those verses that Eric read for us, okay? And verse 12 says this, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. And so just a little context. This verse begins a transition in Joel. Joel breaks it down into two parts. There's chapter 1, which is his description of this recent disaster that had befallen Israel. Okay, And, and, and it's like this locust plague. If you read about it, it's horrific. They've, they've lost all their, their crops. There's the food shortage now. They, all the grape harvest has been depleted. So there's no wine for celebration, no wine. They needed wine for worship, no wine. Uh, And and their forests were now decimated, so there's no shelter, no shade, no wood for building. And and also there's been a disappearance of their fresh water sources. So they're on the the precipice of a drought. I mean, it's nothing short of a cataclysm, okay? What's more, in the first part of chapter 2, where the transition begins, uh, just before that, Joel prophesies an even greater disaster. He thought the locust plague was bad. He says, wait for the day of the Lord. This is what he says in verse 11. The day of the Lord is great. (laughs) It's dreadful. Who can endure it? It's darkness, it's gloom, it's fire, it's flame. I mean, this is nothing short of the apocalypse right here. So he's like, hey, locusts, apocalypse, Merry Christmas, right? So what's fascinating here, though, is in verse 12 where the transition begins. So you have the the first chapter and then the first 11 chapters of chapter 2. Verse 12 is this transitional phrase, okay? And then the rest of the book is huge, just promises. You heard that in verse 32 that we read. Uh, but in verse 12, chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, God extends this offer of grace and, repent, and, and repentance. And, and, and here's what he says, Even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, okay? Even now, it's this recognition, sort of this bridge that's built between this grim destruction and a sort of hopeful expectation. It's this recognition that though they're apparently in the midst of some really hard stuff, hard times are coming, uh, now is the time to return. Now. Not later when it gets worse, not if, maybe it won't. Maybe this apocalypse thing is just kind of Joel's, you know. Uh, But today, even now, which highlights a really simple but really extremely challenging aspect of repentance that I want to talk to you about, okay? And that's this, that it's not just the bad times that are the times to repent, nor is it the worst times, like the apocalypse. So we'll just go then, okay? I'll just wait for the other shoe to drop. It's the good times. It's especially those times, in fact, it's the great times, the times of the abundance and the harvest. Repentance, what Joel is saying, is for all times, all seasons, all of life. Did you know? I mean, did you know that that repentance isn't just for the bad times; it's for good times. It's, it's intended. It's not just intended as a response to our experience of suffering; it's also intended as a response to an experience of flourishing. It doesn't matter what season you're in. I mean, that's why Martin Luther, when he began, you know, the Protestant Reformation, goes to the castle or the, the cathedral in Wittenberg, and he nails the 95 theses to the door. You know this? Do you know the first Thesis in the 95 that sparked the Protestant revolution that we now stand in. This is what it is. The, the, he began this, this is like his overarching statement. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he meant that the entire life of the believer, our believers, should be one of repentance. In other words, he's saying that repentance is not just a moment of conversion. It wasn't the day you met Christ and then prayed to receive him, it's not a season of sorrow and guilt. It's not just a response in the midst of a bad time that we're facing, whether that's your family, our nation, or whatever. It's, it's for good times. It's for all times. Repentance. All of life is repentance, as one friend of mine says. So it's the foundation of the gospel. And so I'll give you an illustration where this really came home to me. About a year ago, uh, I, was, I was invited by a couple families to sit down. And it's two separate families, uh, pretty close together, these meetings, because both of them were dealing with some parenting issues. I'm a parent. We have, Elizabeth and I have two kids, and each, each of these families had a kid that was kind of acting out, you know, kind of off the rails a little bit. Uh, and so, you know, their kids were about my kids' age at the time. My kids are 12 and 7. Um, and so they probably looked at me like, I'm the pastor. I've got it all sorted, right? By the way, Not true. My kids misbehave, just so you know. Uh, but they looked to me for some counsel. So we sat down, counseled them. And I'll, but I'll never forget, uh, about two weeks later, I was working through the book of Luke and my personal devotions in quiet time. And I came to this passage, really bizarre passage in Luke 13. It's the first five verses of Luke 13, you don't need to turn to it. It's so bizarre. It's like another sermon for another day. But the, the, here's the story. The disciples come to Jesus, and they ask him this question about a group of Galileans who... Um, Pilate, the guy who ends up executing Jesus, Pilate brutally murders. I mean, it's a brutal, kind of horrific scene. So they come asking Jesus this question, which we've all perhaps asked God or somebody else in one season or another, why do bad things happen to good people? These were good people. Why did that happen to them? And here's what Jesus says, classic Jesus. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans who weren't killed because they suffered in this way? And then he says, I tell you No. But unless you repent, you too will perish. I'm like, Jesus, what's that mean? You know, it was kind of a weird quiet time. And then he goes on, in the, and he doesn't even, like, take a moment to explain that. He goes on and invites them to consider this other tragedy, apparently like a current day affair, where this tower in, Sil- in Siloam had apparently fallen on some people. Like, it's like real news, like you read in the newspaper. And some died, some lived. Like, 18 people die, and then others live. Okay? So they must have known about this, this thing. And Jesus says, do you think those that died were extraordinarily bad people and they deserved to die over and against all the others living in Jerusalem, those 18 people, they were the bad ones and God was getting them. Do you think that? And so they deserve such an untimely death? And he's like, of course not. You idiots. Duh. That's not how God works. But unless you repent, you'll too Perish. And so I'm like, it's this pregnant little like gnomic utterance, like he's Gandalf or something, full of meaning. I have no idea what it means, but here's the deal. I'm not sure I told you all this. I'm studying this story, and I've just met with these families, and uh, I heard this voice. And I know that's a really weird thing for a Presbyterian pastor to say, but I did. I heard this voice, like this really distinct inner voice. So I got out my journal, and I started to write down what this voice was saying, (laughs) because it felt important to me. And this is what the voice said. Do you think those parents that you just met with are worse parents, Jack? Because their children's lives have blown up and yours haven't. And Jesus said, or the voice, <laughs> who's Jesus? Of course not, Jack. I mean, of course not. And Jack, unless your outlook has changed, here's the, here's the punchline. He's like, wake up. Unless you repent now, you too will perish. It, repentance is for all of life, Jack. Is what he's saying, and that was like a dagger to my heart. Not because I was like, God's coming to get me now, and He's going to make our life blow up, and my kids are going to start misbehaving and stuff. But because I began to see that what Jesus was saying in that strange passage in Luke, what Joel is saying in, in, in his prophecy, is, is this: that during the good times, when you're, it's it's your hearts, it's your temptation of your heart to to, to self justify. Pride is really the biggest temptation we can face, more than really any other sin. Pride, your self-importance. And during those good times, your pride inevitably grows, and you're very subtly you begin to put down roots in your heart into those good things, the good things in your life, the good circumstances of your life, and you begin to say things like this. Maybe this is you. Hey, I'm doing pretty good in my career. Like I'm on this trajectory right now. I've gotten a promotion. I got a great annual review. I got, a, I got a raise, must mean something, right? Must mean something. Or I got 2,000 likes on that Facebook post. <laughs> you know, actually 200, but I have 2,000 friends. <laughs> and those chowderheads in my feed have two likes, must mean something, right? How connected I am, right? How liked I am. Or somebody over there is falling in love with me, I'm getting invited to join that crowd now. And this person across the room, that guy, must mean something, right? Or, hey, my family's doing really well right now, while that family over there is suffering, must mean something. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? It's subtle, but what, you, what we tend to do in that time, those times, is we, we, we tend to look at other people whose lives maybe aren't going as well as our life, and we make comparisons. We line our lives up against other lives, and if our life happens to be going better than another life or another person's life, what do we do? we get a little bit self-righteous, a little bit proud, right? We tend to say, it must mean something. It must mean something. And I'll just say, though I didn't act in a self-righteous way toward these families I met with, I, I think it went pretty well. This passage came along to me from Luke at just the right time as the Holy Spirit's way of saying to my heart, uh, very lovingly but also very firmly, I think the Spirit is very firm, don't you dare look at any good thing happening in your life as anything other than a sign of sheer and undeserved grace. That's it. That life itself, this moment we have right now, the breath you just took, is sheer and undeserved grace. You didn't earn that. Uh, And therefore, in response to the grace that you're given, everything's grace, everything is for repentance, all of life. For, For turning to God, returning to God, responding and receiving His grace. Do you see how that equation works? It's not for the bad times when you feel bad about what you've done. It's for the good times. It's for saying, God, thank you. Like learning to meditate on the good things in your life as sheer signs of grace and then learning to say to Jesus, you turn to him, Lord, I can't believe it. I can't believe this gift you've given me, this family, this job, this community. I can't believe it. Thank you. I turn to you. Your grace is so great. I turn to you for my sufficiency and my security. Not these things. They're good. But I want you, not those things. I I want to move toward you in repentance, not those things. I want to be gripped by you, not those things. That's what Jesus would say to us. What he's saying through this prophetic declaration in Joel, even now, even now, uh, there's, there's no more important time, my friends, than now to repent, to return and to turn and return to God. So let me ask you, where are you right now? What kind of season are you in? Are you, in a, are you in a good time? I see, I see you smiling. Are you in a good time? Going on sabbatical. Career's going great. I won't even pick on you, Nate, because I always do, but you're smiling too. But, you know, you're even now. It's a good time, right? It's summer, sun's out. In your career, your intimacy with your spouse, even now is the time for repentance. That's what the Lord's saying to us. Whatever that now is in your life, okay? It's time to turn to God, okay? So that's number one. And that's just the first part of the first movement, okay? So And the reason I want to do this is because these two are really connected. So this is number two under that first heading, still under this magnitude of repentance, okay? So it's all of life. Here's the second thing, all people. All people, all life is for repentance. All people are called to repentance, okay? So this catastrophe that's facing Israel is huge. You can imagine this drought, this famine, Like no forests left. Can you imagine if we had no trees left here? Like I just threw Tri-Cities under the bus last week, but I was there two weeks ago. Uh, Wow. You know, you live in a desert and there's nothing and it's hot. Uh, And God says, he beckons them in the face of this tragedy to return to him with all their hearts, inviting them into this season of repentance. And then in verse 15, he describes it this way, as a time of fasting, stillness, and then cessation of work. Okay? And then in verse 16, he says, call an assembly of the people. So fast, be still, stop working, and then assemble all the people. Some translations call that a solemn assembly. So what's a solemn assembly? What is that? Like it sounds like a funeral, right? And it maybe kinda is. So these were held in the days when God's people were straying from God, okay? And so in the case of Joel, a leader would stand up before the God and kind of hold up a mirror, so to speak, and say, hey, turn back to God. This is, you see what you're doing. You're you're self-destructing right now. Turn to God, okay? And as as often was the issue, this leader would, would issue the call to an assembly. Get everyone together, fast, pray, confess, worship, discern together the next steps, okay, in order to make that return. So, blow the trumpet, declare a fast, gather the people. But if you heard Eric read this, it's really weird in those verses surrounding that declaration who God invites to the assembly. Think of who's here right now. This would be kind of our assembly. Most of us are kind of, you know, we have high schoolers in the room, a few toddlers, but most of us are over the age of 18. Most of us have been around the church for a while, you know. Uh, look, at, look at who he invites, the elderly. The young, including infants and toddlers, nursing infants, men and women, brides and grooms. I know a few of you just got married. On their wedding night, bring them out. Like, end the wedding, or whatever's going on, bring them out. Business leaders, political leaders, teachers, pastors, and this is me paraphrasing, but priests. So you have pastors there. You name it. Everyone. Bring everyone to this assembly. Every imaginable person is being invited to take take part in this kind of National act of repentance. So what's that about? I mean, surely the infants didn't do anything wrong, right? Like, they're not responsible for what's going on, are they? And, like, the wedding the wedding couple, the couple, like, give me a break. It's their wedding night. They get a pass, right? And, like, I understand the businessmen, women stuff, but pastors and priests, they can surely get the job done. We have, like, holy hands, right? We can do this. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> Let me edit that one out. Uh, so God calls all people to assemble why 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 is it necessary that everyone infants newlyweds young old all these people are gathered well there's a couple things to observe about this the first comes from what i just said but i want to reiterate okay that repentance isn't for bad times bad things it's it's not restitution or recompense for the things you've done that are out of line with god's will repentance is as much about the good times and good things as well turning from those So in other words, listen to this, repentance, the emphasis in repentance is not on the things themselves, the circumstances of your life, but on the act of turning. The the, the focus of repentance is on the act of turning. So why wouldn't everyone be a part of that? Everyone's being called to turn. It doesn't matter what you've done or not done. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what season you're in. It's on the turning, okay? So turn and return to God. That's number one. But here's the second key, and this is really important for us. Repentance is never, while it's personal, very personal, it's never private. Never private. Here's what I mean by that. It's a hard concept for us to grasp, especially today, in this hyper-individualistic culture we live in, where, like, everything is like, you know, I've got my truth now. We say that. Like, uh, no. (laughs) When things go wrong, I mean, listen to this. This is how that plays out. We'll tend to point the finger, or we'll tend to take the credit, you know, my truth, (laughs) my success. Uh, And when we do that, we've lost to a great degree our sense of collective identity. Uh, And that that collectiveness is is this sort of, it's deeply embedded in the Bible, all over the Bible. When you read Paul's letters, when he says you, he's actually saying y'all. He's never speaking to, well, very rarely speaking to individuals, but to communities. And that collectiveness is really deep, is embedded in the the biblical uh, idea of repentance. So Eugene Peterson, one of my, Favorite author is kind of a former pastor that I, I follow. He says this about repentance. In the biblical story, repentance cannot be narrowed down to something private. It can never be narrowed down to something private, such as being sorry for your sins and, and getting ready to make amends. The call, he says, is to return to God and the ways of God with God's people. There's a witness to repentance, to repentance, so it's to return to the story of God and everything in that story with everyone who's in that story. If you can imagine that. It has to do with entering into this new way of life and doing so as a citizen of the kingdom of God. There's no individuals in the kingdom. We're part of a community. And, and so then he goes on to say, tacking on this recommended devotional practice that you, to your already busy life is not going to do. It's not going to work. Making us like a new year's resolution, a set of resolutions will not do. Feeling sorry and, and deep and deep sorrow in your heart will not do. Moods can be cultivated, emotions manipulated, resolutions too easily broken. Here's what he says What must be abandoned in our understanding of repentance is the lonely, post enlightenment individual bent on their quest for private salvation. What must be abandoned is the lonely, post-and-light individual bent on their quest for private salvation. We don't save ourselves, and you don't repent by yourself. That's the, that's the point here. We must learn to repent in community with others, seeking God together, good times and bad times, returning to, the, returning to God with God's people. That's why we did this massive baby dedication or child dedication this morning. That's an act of repentance. That's these families saying, hey, we want to turn to God with each other. We're going to hold each other accountable in that journey. We're not doing it alone. We're doing it with you. Do you see how that works? So let me give you another example of how that might look. Because right away, I can hear somebody say, yeah, but I don't have kids, or I already dedicated my kids, so I'm, that ship sailed, you know? How does this look for me? Well, Peterson, uh, he writes about this in this, this book uh, where I took that quote from. It's called Tell It Slant, Conversation in the Language of Jesus and His Stories and Prayers. And uh, he tells this story in the book of this day where he's driving through the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado with his wife. And they came upon this scene of this really tragic motorcycle accident. The motorcycle had gone over this, this cliff and the, 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 motor, the cyclist had plunged off the road into this precipice and, and been killed several hundred feet. It's it a horrific scene. And he describes this scene of these rescue workers that they drove up, like frantically working with the system of pulleys and ropes trying to bring this guy's body out. And, uh, and so they, they, they stopped. They were curious, as many of the motorists were. And the, there were some police officers that were just kind of getting them around that. But the road kind of bent around. And so they, with other motorists, out of curiosity, were, just wanted to see what was going on. And so they stopped further down the road at this bend. And one of the police officers saw them and got a bullhorn and, and yelled, get back in the car. There's nothing to see here. And of course, he's like, Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. So he just kept watching. And the police officer said, Get back in the car. There's nothing to see here. And so reluctantly, they got back in their car. But the story wasn't over. And this is what Eugene Peterson wrote He says this That's how the story ended that day. We drove, our curiosity unsatisfied. But the story, as stories often do, keeps playing itself in my imagination every day. As a parent and a pastor and an interpreter of Scripture, I take a special interest in imperatives. The imperative, which is "get back in the car" or "repent," it's an imperative. The imperative is the briefest, clearest, and least ambiguous way to communicate. Uh, and for anyone who cares about living well, and is responsible for others living well, like a parent or a pastor or a police officer, its uh, imperatives are stock in trade in our language. Eat your cereal. <laughs> Clean up your bedroom. Love God. Love your neighbor. Get back in the car. Repent. An imperative gets your attention. It's easily understood. It doesn't require explanation. And in, short, in the short term, at least, it's usually effective. The officer's command on that mountain road did all that it was intended to do. It got my attention. It got me into the car. And it got me moving. What it did not do, listen to this. And, I'm not making a, and he's not making a value judgment on whether the officer was right or wrong. Don't go there. But what it did not do was make me a participant in what was going on nor was it designed to. It was intended to do the opposite, to eliminate my participation from what was going on. But this is what Peterson says. What I'm interested in is not the isolated imperative that gets my attention and gets me moving, but how it develops into indicatives and subjunctives and imperfects and perfects, a full range of involvement in the sentence of life. What would have happened, he said? For instance, if that police officer had sent one of his subordinates to me and said, hey, we need some help, retrieving this man's body, or calling his family. Are you all? All you're doing is looking through binoculars right now. You're not doing any good. <laughs> you're getting in the way. Would you come and help us? We need some help with these ropes. I can't imagine not doing that, Peterson says. It wouldn't be much, just holding and pulling on a rope, making a quick phone call to a family member. It wouldn't require much skill. But then I would be in the story, not an in-the-way spectator. So here's my question to you. Are you in the story? Uh, you know, you want to know how this looks. <laughs> is there someone in your life who you know that you know that you know is in that so-called ravine? <laughs> uh, and, and you are just being invited in to just hold a rope or even pull on the rope a little bit. Uh, it's interesting. You know, I've, I've had opportunities in my life as a pastor where I've done that. Uh, In in people's returning and turning to God, profound loss. Um, Someone's gotten a diagnosis. Uh, They're facing a future that's radically different than they imagined. The marriage is coming apart. They've been confronted with infidelity or addiction or loneliness. It's interesting to me that those are just the circumstances afforded to me as a pastor. They're not unique to the pastoral vocation. It's a privilege. I get to sit with you guys. It's really cool, thank you. But those people that I get to sit with, many of you, those losses, that loneliness, that infidelity, those shattered hopes, are circumstances that are not unique to the church. And the people you will gather with tomorrow morning if you work, or if you go to the park as a stay-at-home parent, or in your neighborhood walking down your street, or the kids in your kids' school. Are the people that are facing those very same circumstances that are on the end of that same rope, is there anyone in your life that you know that you know, that you know God is inviting you to just set aside some time for? Be still. Declare a fast. Stop working. (laughs) Are there opportunities for you to enter into the grief of somebody else, their confusion, their doubt? Not trying to fix it, but like Peterson said, just hold the end of the rope and say, I'm with you. God's with you. I'm for you. We, We can do this. That's the, that's, that's, the, that's the first movement. Repentance is for all life and it involves all people. It doesn't matter if you're in a good season or a hard season. It doesn't matter if you're young or very old. In, you're involved. You're part of it, okay? Here's the second movement. Like I said, this will be a bit shorter. Repentance, you, you're being called to put genuine repentance into action. This is verse 13. Probably the verse you know from Joel or one of them. Uh, and we're going to spend a little less time on this, but it's the central principle really of repentance. So, all people, all seasons, how does that look? Well, here you go. Rend your hearts, not your garments. You've, you've heard that verse probably. I think there's even some songs, 80s <laughs> songs that we sung. So what's this about? I mean, it's this vivid, vivid image. Uh, the rending of a, of a garment or a heart, let's just take a garment, is the ripping, if I were to rip my shirt, I won't do that, but rip my shirt off, like that's rending it, right? You're tearing it. And so the rending of the heart is literally, you can't really rip a heart, you cut it. Like you're cutting, you're, you're cutting a piece of flesh. It's pretty gruesome. Think about it. And so obviously it's a metaphor. God's not like this masochist. So what does it mean? Like in practice. Well, in ancient Near East, the tearing of garments, it commonly, commonly preceded in, in, in an act of repentance, the putting on of, of the sackcloth. So you'd rip it, you put it on, and you roll around some ash, okay? That was kind of what you saw and you'll see a lot in these prophets. So here in Joel 2 is the only occasion in the Old Testament where, the, where Joel, the writer, instructs the people to do so with their hearts instead of their garments. So don't do what all the other prophets are telling you to do. Don't rip that garment and then put it on and roll around in ash. Do that with your heart. It's pretty profound. And, and what he's getting at is this reality that there's this overwhelming temptation the people of God are facing to simply offer the forms of repentance to merely express their sorrow, uh, to put on the sackcloth, roll around some ashes and say how sorry we are, or in our case, to write an apologetic email, you know, tell somebody how sorry you are, and just be on with business, right? Uh, While inwardly, your heart hasn't made any movement. There's been no change. In other words, the rending of the heart instead of the clothing or whatever you would put in the place of that is a declaration that, there's no, that no outward act of repentance will suffice when an inward change has not happened. No outward act of repentance will suffice when an inward change has not happened. It's all about your heart. And interestingly, Jesus addresses this challenge as well in, in the Gospel of Luke as well in chapter 11. So we looked at chapter 13, chapter 11. He's invited over to this Pharisee's house for dinner. And the Pharisee is a bit bewildered because Jesus does not wash his hands before he eats dinner. Little sidebar for the young ones. If your parents tell you to wash your hands before dinner, boom, Luke 11. Jesus didn't wash his hands. Okay, so here's Jesus. I'm actually not kidding. That's really good stuff. So Jesus is there, and this, this Pharisee's like, what? you can't do that. You have to wash your hands. And here's Jesus' response. Let me just read this real quick. Uh, Luke eleven 39. I'll read it. You don't have to turn to it. Here's what he says. You Pharisee, you're a walking contradiction. You're so concerned about the external things, how clean my hands are, uh, like someone who washes the outside of a cup but never cleans the inside. I mean, you, know, you wouldn't do that. You couldn't wash the dishes and then say, yeah, I clean the dishes, but they're all, they're all dirty on the inside. That doesn't work that way. You're, you're a walking contradiction. Who does that, He says, What counts? Beneath your fastidiousness exterior, he says, is a mess of extortion and interior extortion and filth. Beneath your fastidious exterior clean hands is a mess of filth in your heart. Do you hear that? Here's what Jesus is saying. (laughs) Uh, He's saying that it's possible, it's probably likely for us to look good on the outside for a really long time. You know, I, I I had shorts on earlier today, and I joked with a couple of people, I think I'll put some jeans on, dress it up a little bit, because I don't think it's okay to wear shorts as a pastor. Literally, I thought that, you know, I wanted to look good for the families here, so I put my jeans on for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's that, but I literally thought, I need to look good for church. I know some of you did the same thing today, you know, your church clothes. It's, it's and it's not bad to do that, but it's, it's tempting for us to look good on the outside, Well, on the inside, your heart, you come in with all kinds of shame. You come in with all kinds of hurt. You come in, like, if people really knew what I'd done this week, what I'd said in work, how I was treating my employees, how i treat my spouse and my kids, wow, they probably wouldn't let me in these doors. Uh, Your heart is not really prepared for the work of return to God. You're coming in looking good but you're not really ready to return. So listen, the reality is that real repentance always begins in the heart. It starts here. As we come to terms with our own weakness and our, and our vulnerability and our, embrace our brokenness, I've got lots of broken areas in my life. I'm learning to embrace that and then confess that to people. Say, hey, yeah, I don't have it together. That's not why I'm a pastor. Uh, I'm willing to, to tell you I have a lot of unbelief. I'm not sure I know everything. <laughs> the people that know me know that. And so we begin to recognize this, that this deep inner work of healing that God wants to do within us, it really it begins by us first saying, God, my heart needs repair. It starts here. Rend, God, I want to rend my heart. And then you can express outwardly things such as lament and confession and, and, and pursue reconciliation and pursue healing. You understand this? I'll say it again, no outward act of repentance is good. All those are just outward acts. They're good. Healing, reconciliation, confession, lament, that's all good stuff. Those are outward acts, expressions of an inward reality. No outward act is going to suffice when the inward change has not begun. So it leaves one more question for us to look at. How do you return your heart to God? How do you fix a heart issue? If you've got a heart issue issue this morning... How do you fix that? How do you begin fixing that? Well, simply put, to rend your heart and then return to God means just this. Here's your take-home assignment. You're not seeking anything other than Christ. It's not Jesus ellipsis plus whatever it is. Jesus plus the solution. Jesus plus the freedom from the addiction. Jesus plus the healing or protection for your reputation or recovery for what's been lost. It's not an outcome. It's not Jesus plus those things. It's just Jesus. That's what it means to rend your heart, to have your life so narrowed and so refined that it's Christ and Christ alone that you're pursuing and seeking and turning to. And you're doing this not because Jesus wants to strip you down. He's not some drill sergeant. But because the Bible says that when you do this, when you actually believe that Jesus is enough, when he is sufficient, if you believe that in your heart, and he takes up a dwelling in there and says, hey, I'm sufficient for your healing. I'm sufficient for your freedom. I'm sufficient for your reputation and all the outcomes you desire. If you believe that, then everything else in your life will be built on him. Everything. Your reputation, built on Christ. Your healing, built on Christ. Your future, built on Christ. Your freedom is built, will be built on Christ. And that, the promise in that is that foundation will never erode and be shaken. That's the promise. So where's your heart right now? What are you building it on? What's the state of your heart? Like, Think of it this way. What do you want in your deepest heart right now? Is it a relationship? Is it a promotion? Is it a raise? Is it friendship? Is it healing? Whatever it is. Is it this outcome? Is it an answer? It, whatever it is is it if it's not Christ, if it hasn't been Christ for a long time, if you're not seeking Christ, uh, would you turn to Christ today and begin to return to Him? And see, here's the promise. I told you there's three movements here. Here's the real quick third movement. Because there is a promise in that turning and returning. And it's really quick, and this is why I had Eric read the 32nd verse of chapter 2. There's a bunch of promises. There's this promise of, God pouring out his spirit on all flesh. There's a, a promise of God making up for the lost years. But here's a beautiful promise. If we'll return to God in real repentance, just making Christ and Christ alone all that we desire. Here's the promise. Verse 32, chapter 2 of Joel. Everyone, that's all y'all, who calls on the name of the Lord, who turns to God in genuine repentance, will be liberated. Do you hear that? Turn and return to God, you'll be freed. Absolutely, unconditionally Freed be liberated. Mount Zion and Jerusalem will shelter you. You'll you'll be protected. Isn't that awesome? And then just as the Lord has said, among those who survive, I will call them. Here's what that means. I will call your name. I'll tell you you're loved. That's all Jesus is saying here. If you'll turn and return to me, I will speak into your life in ways you've never imagined. So do you want that? I see a few nodding. (laughs) Let me pray for us. I'll invite Worship team forward real quick. And as I'm praying, uh, just pray with me, okay? I'll, tr- I'll pray over us, but pray, pray, with, pray with me as we pray. Well, hey, Lord, we turn to you. Um, again, thanking you that you met us in this space. Uh, and as we turn to you, we, we, we actually find you there. Um, seated with us if we're alone standing before us as we even look to the cross this morning and remember your victory over death. Thank you, Jesus. And so, trusting that you're with us, we we express our desire to return to you as a community, God. We don't do this alone. We do this personally, but we do this together, God, where our intimacy with you has been just grown stale and wooden, God, where our doubts are invading our trust for you. God, where fear is is overcoming our ability to give and receive love, God, will you draw us toward yourself? God, in our relationships where, God, there's been a misunderstanding or bitterness or rejection, we return to you. And God, in our brokenness where there's been deep shame, we return. And God, for many of us in the room, we're in a season of great joy, so the birth of a child or a success in our career, or our church is flourishing. We thank you for that. But we long to return to you. And so we confess that all of our lives is for repentance. And so we give you our hearts right now. We turn, we return. And God, we, we ask now, uh, in your spirit, would you reveal to us where there are people in our lives alongside who long do we can come, hold that rope, so to speak, of rescue. Would you give us the courage to do so, the patience to set aside what we're, apart, what we're doing, hearts that are free to be still. And God, thank you for these promises here of freedom, of protection. Thank you above all so that your voice calls to us, calls us home and declares to our hearts that we're loved. So God, it's in your love and trusting in that love that we now respond in worship. Pray in Christ's name, amen.